described commercial fashion, beauty and editorial photographer. And we're going to kind of touch on all of that as we go. Uh, but just to start with, what, what sort of brought you to photography in the first place? Uh, so the thing that brought me to photography in the first place was, it was a bit of an accident mixed with a bit of serendipity. So the long story short is that during 2008, which was the last time we had some sort of crisis like this, I was just finishing up university. Actually, no, 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 tell a lie. Um, I was just starting university and dad, who was a contractor, had just been let go from whatever work he was doing. And at that point, he had about a year to 14 months of just free time. I say free time, he was looking for new jobs, trying new things. And one of the things that he tried out was wedding videography. So he had a video camera, he went with other crews and he just did videos. Then he needed a second body. So he got a DSLR, gave that to me and told me to man it. And I tried it out and I pretty much just got the bug from that point on onwards. I was like, oh, what's this camera? Because I'd always liked taking cameras to like gigs and shows. And I'd always have, a, you know, like the family small cyber shot Sony thing that we had at the time on me. And when I got a DSLR, I was like, oh, well, let me try some other things. And then after that, I went to... I think it was an arts fest in Birmingham. It used to be put on by Kerrang Radio, if anyone remembers that. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I pretty much went up to the lady at the barrier and asked her nicely, it's like, how do I get to the other side of the barrier to shoot? And she literally said, oh, just go to the person over there, tell them I sent you and they'll give you a pass. You can stay for the rest of the day. Turns out being polite pays off. So <laughs> I started shooting. That was like my first gig that I shot, I suppose. And then from there, I just kept on shooting whatever came my way and then you obviously progressed on to photographing models and what's the link yeah. there how how was the what was the first step into photographing models so the first step was when this all kicked off so after i did that gig that i've just mentioned i was actually strangely enough i was on a charity walk of all things and one of the people i met there did just pretty much like indian bridal runway modeling and she was within a social group that I knew, but this is the first time that I'd met her. And then maybe two or three weeks later, she invited me down to a wedding exhibition. I came down with my camera, pretty much took shots of everyone and everything there. And off the back of that, I got booked or I got inquiries for weddings. And then some people were like, oh, I'm a makeup artist. Could, could we do a portfolio shoot for my brand? And then I started doing shoots for them. And then it just slowly built and built it and built. I started to find like websites where you could get in touch with people. This is like as Instagram was growing, but you had like other sites like Model Mayhem and all that kind of stuff where, you know, if you're not shooting, I didn't know what agencies were at that point in time. I didn't know, you know, how to shoot with agency models. I thought that, that they were like, you know, way up here. And I was like way down here because I was starting out. I was in that kind of headspace. And um, it just became a case of growing your network and practicing with new people. And then you get lucky sometimes. Maybe you just know someone who's extremely photogenic and with a good network. And then you do one shoot with them. And then all of a sudden, loads of other people want to shoot with you. And this is all while I still have a full-time job. I was working at Jaguar Land Rover at this point in time. And I was also getting my skills up with retouching because I'd always loved Photoshop. So... I'd always thought when I saw a great beauty shot, I'd be like, oh, how did they retouch that? And then I got my hands on a raw file and I was like, oh, they shot it this way to start with. And then I started shooting more beauty. And then that's when I could start getting in with agencies and things like this and working directly with like you know, better clients and things like this. Beauty retouching is obviously its own kind of crazy animal. Um, so I've had the opportunity the last couple of weeks to speak to some um, real high-end beauty um, retouchers as well as photographers. And it's um, it's something that's always baffled me at the sheer skill level and the concentration. And uh, it's a very much a gatekeeper's kind of um, thing where someone like me that would need to learn from someone else, there's not too many people that are willing to teach uh, certain aspects of that. Um, when it comes to the retouching versus the photography, which do you prefer or do you use one to offset the other? I use the photography to offset how much retouch I'm going to need to do. Because uh, one thing that I've learned is that when you've got, if if you don't have good skin to start with, your your um your post production process is going to be ten times longer. And then on top of that, once you evaluate the skin that you have on set, 
if you're then using really harsh light or if you're using any light really, which isn't lighting them in a particularly flattering way, then you're going to make your life even harder on top of that. So the, the things which, which uh, contribute to how much post-production you're going to have is the skin you have to start with, the makeup that then goes on top of that skin, and hopefully there's not a huge amount of it because when you have too much makeup, you get too much product settling. And then this is where your makeup artist comes into play. I think people forget that makeup artists are still actually artists. You know, they're not just mm-hmm. people with brushes. They're actual people who know what they're doing when they are proper makeup artists. And then on top of that is the lighting you use to then, which then interacts with the skin and the makeup. So if you use a really harsh light on a really harsh angle with really bad skin, it ain't going to turn out pretty. It doesn't matter who it is and how much retouching you're going to do. That is not going to turn out well. You need to understand what finish the makeup has to then understand what type of light you want to use on it. And then the skin is sort of, I suppose it is what it is at that point. That's the one thing you can't change. That's what you're going to be spending your time in post-production on. Well, the thing that takes someone's work over the edge really is the ability to assess and address problems with the really small details, I think, rather than just the overall thing. I I think people tend to think that model photography is a case of get camera, get pretty person, take picture, and then it will just be fine. But what takes stuff really like it's obviously it's like, um, it's like it becomes diminishing returns because the smaller and smaller stuff seems less and less important to people who are further away from it. But actually, it's the little details right at the top end of things that really do set the, the, the great people apart. Would that be right? Yeah, I know. It's, it's one of these things where that, come, that just comes down to experience, where you've, it, you've messed up so many times before and now you've spotted what it is that is the common thread of what's been going wrong. So now you can address these things on set to start with. So a good example might be, um, in terms of, I think styling is something which is very overlooked because I think within this industry, like you have on the bottom end, you have just guys with cameras who are just like, Oh, pretty girl, pretty, you know, this light is the light I was taught. And then that's it. You know, they're just making visual content for the sake of it, but there's not necessarily a point to it. If you see what I mean? I've got to a stage where now if I'm, if I'm looking at a picture and I can't see the point of it, I'm like, well, what is this trying to sell? Is it trying to sell a product? Is it trying to sell a clothing? Is it trying, you know, if we can't address those and have clear answers, then sometimes, or if it is just a case of we're just testing out new lighting, then fair enough. But sometimes I think that there's just, there's so much content for the sake of content's sake. I think that it's easy to get trapped with just like, Hey, let's do a shoot. All right, cool. But why not? And I don't say that in a combative form, like, you know, why should I, but it's like, okay, what's, what are we trying to achieve here? And I I think that's a question that isn't asked enough. So, but yeah, when it comes to, um, actually like getting things in camera to start with. So (laughs) styling is one of the major things as well, because I was just on a trip in Cape town and we want, I wanted to do this shoot where it was just, this girl on the beach in like um basically black trousers black jacket and a shirt kind of kind of like inception vibes when you first like the first scene where it washes up on the beach mm-hmm. but then we were like okay if you've got all this color in the background and all this texture of sand we need to strip this down but still make it look classic so we we're like okay let's leave the shirt so it's just the jacket and the trousers on skin and that's fine But then if we're going to do that, we need something to draw the attention. And so we chose a specifically just a simple gold chain that would go around because that's highly reflective and will have a lot of contrast. That's what's going to set this thing off because everything else is really soft and washy and ethereal. Whereas this thing is going to stand out because it's exactly opposite to all those things. And it worked treat. I mean, there's so many sort of directions I want to go in with this. You've basically, in some form or another, brought up every point I want to go into. So I'm kind of having to pick my moments <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> here. Let's get the let's get the other people out of the way, and then we'll talk more about you. So let's talk about models. Um, wh- where are you sourcing your models, and uh, how did you go about? I, I'm assuming you're working with agencies. How did you go about approaching them? So with so I'm sourcing them through agencies. And if not through agencies, then it's got to a point now where I've shot with so many from agencies that I can just DM people on Instagram 
and they can just see, you know, I've worked with you know people that they know, people that they can go and check and be like, oh, you know, you worked with him. Yes. You know, they can have that whole sense of security and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how I first started uh, working with agencies, that was where it became, I think there was this element of getting out of my own way. Cause I remember re- I just rang some up basically. That's how, that's how it happened. I rang up an agency and I was so nervous. I was like, hi, my name is Indy. I'm doing this. I didn't, I didn't give the person 30 seconds to even think. I just bombarded them with all the information because I was just, I had them on a pedestal. And once you realize that, Hey, they're just people at the end of the day, but they just, they work on a very tight time scale and you can just be a bit more confident and efficient with your words, then they'll respect that. And usually when you're first starting out, they'll just send you new faces. So people who don't have a portfolio to start with, they may not be particularly experienced. Uh, so they may not know their body well, they may not know their angles well. So it's literally just a free test to see, you know, can you both get something good out of this, you know, hour or two session. And then the other thing that helped me was I assisted some other photographers now every now and then. And then you start to build networks with other makeup artists and assistants on those sets. And they will, if they're more established than you, then they will lend you credibility. So when I reached out to an agency, they saw that I had worked with a makeup artist who was fairly well known. So they were like, oh, okay, this guy's legit. That's the thought process. And then they were happy to send people to me. Well, I was told by a beauty photographer a few years ago, one that's no longer doing it, unfortunately. I'd, l- I'd love to have him actually on the podcast because he's got such an interesting perspective. But he said to me, a piece of advice he gave me, which has always stuck with me, which was never be the most talented person on the shoot because you're all you're doing is giving other people a helping hand up. Would that sound a bit harsh or fair? Or I mean, I understand what he's... I think probably what would have been... I understand what that person is trying to say. I just think maybe the delivery wasn't the, the best it could have been. Oh, he was he was a super harsh guy. Like he, he would say okay. stuff the most flat that you could possibly have it where like he would he would message me about images that I put up and just tell me just flat out what was wrong with them. He wouldn't tell me what was right with them, but I, I knew him well enough to understand the perspective that he was coming from. Yeah, yeah. he's not deliberately trying to be mean spirited. He's just trying to be efficient with like, this is the thing you need to know. Um, yeah, I think what he's trying to say is basically make sure you're testing upwards. So there's always someone on there that you can learn from and that you can benefit from. Now, there are so many ways that you can approach that. Some people might see that as um, like quite a manipulative thing. Like, oh, you know, you don't want to help other people out when you know some people want to come up together. And it really manifests itself in different markets. So for instance, if you go to New York, it's everything is deliberately transactional. So, oh, you know, I want to hook you up with this person so we can go and do this. It's perfect there because... When you go to New York, everyone knows what they're in for. Everyone knows they're testing so that they're benefiting from everyone else. It's like an open secret and no one's ever feeling like they're being used or manipulated or anything like that. You go to some other markets, it's like, oh, people will have fake friendships in order to benefit from, you know, being in someone's circle, you know, like that's very much an LA vibe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, like I said, there's different ways you can look at it, but I I would agree in the sense of try not to be the person make sure that put it this way, make sure that you can get something new out of it. I think that's yep. the way to probably put it, which doesn't sort of alienate anyone. I mean, it, they're both, they're both true, but you just want to be like, you might be the most followed person out of the, yeah, let's say you've got the biggest Instagram following out of the people on set, right? So you're the A side essentially, but you never know if that model and that makeup artist take a TikTok video in between sets and then use your images like the after, like, you know, before, during, after. And that blows up on that platform, which you're not on. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's not so cutthroat. It's, um, you got to think of it from all potential perspectives. And sticking with models then in terms of your own preference and what you look for in terms of skill set from models, what, what are you looking for from a model for your work? So I'm looking for models with good skin when I'm doing beauty. Um, because without that, uh, you're just setting yourself up for like a lot of work afterwards. And typically if you're shooting beauty models anyway, 
that's their job. You know, they know to look after their skin or they just, you know, they're they're naturally blessed with good skin to start with. Um, And then for other stuff, say from doing swimwear or body and things like this, I mean, just make sure that it fits the brief. So if your brief that you set out for yourself is, I want to do some work, which looks like it could be like a lingerie campaign. Well, then you need to make sure that you're looking at people who look like they could fit the brief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And typically I'd always look for people who have done it, have done something similar before. So you're not asking someone to go out of their comfort zone or, you know, try something brand new. It's like, I've seen that you can do this. So I need some images in this. Can we do that? And then in return, because that might not be anything new for them in return, they might say, Oh, but can we do some beauty images? Cause I know that you do good beauty work. And then all of a sudden you have a two featured shoot. Mm-hmm. You do the beauty work first because that's what they need. And also the makeup will be the most fresh. And then you just do, you know, say that you do like your swimwear shoot right afterwards. And by that point, everyone's comfortable with each other. Everyone knows each other, how they work and their dynamic. You've had your warm up, and you're all good to go. That's actually how I got to shoot a lot of people before I was working with agencies. I would message them, but the way I managed to actually shoot with them was I'd say, look, what do you need for your book? Because that's something which is tangible and relevant for them. And because I had no particular direction that I was going in, I was like, I just need to shoot. I don't really care what it is. By them saying, oh, I need some swimmer in my book. Oh, I need some beauty in my book. All of a sudden now you have a brief and then you can just go out and execute it. In terms of the um, the model themselves and your workflow, are you, are you someone that kind of shoot, check image, shoot, check image, or once you're ready to go, are you kind of trying to build up a bit of a rhythm and get stuff done in sort of quite a consecutive sequence? Um, I'm shoot, check image to start with, just to make sure my settings for this particular lighting setup are like consistent. But that's just like image check. So just be like, hey, I'm just testing this. All right, cool. Make an adjustment. Okay, just testing this. Cool, make an adjustment. Once that's done, then I then just carry on and on and on and on and on until we move to a different uh, you know, area or different lighting position or wherever something has changed, I'll always do a couple of test shots first because there's nothing worse than shoot, check, stop, shoot, check, stop because you do need a rhythm. And one thing I also do is I tend to do a countdown of the last 10 shots I'll do because some models will have like maybe, you know, 60 variations of what they can do. Others might have only say 20 and Mm -hmm. they might be thinking like, yo, is, is, is this, is this guy done yet? Like, is he, is, is he done? Cause I've run through all my poses or, um, in other cases where I start that countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 you can see it instantly like, Oh crap. Okay. This is this. I need to turn it on now because this is, these are the last ones. Right. Cause I tend to shoot quite quickly. And once I, once I know I've got what I needed, I I'm like, okay, I don't need to be here anymore. I can just move on to the next thing. I think overshooting is one of the worst habits you can have when you're photographing people, especially if you do it early on in a shoot and you've got multiple sets because you just wear down the enthusiasm quite quickly. Yeah. And because I, I somehow managed to overshoot, but then also shoot quickly, which is, well, I'm glad that I shoot quick because then I'm not overshooting even more because I'll, I'll mm-hmm. still come away with far more pictures than is necessary in a shoot. But from my perspective, it's just a case of, you know, I'd rather have the extra shot where I could have caught something in between than not have had it. And we all know we missed something. I don't want to throw around too many um compliments here it's not i'm english it's not in my nature to throw around too many compliments but you might be one of the bravest people that i know um in that you advertise yourself as shooting swimwear and you live in london um which is obviously part (laughs) of england which is not exactly the swimwear capital of the world um so tell us about how you're shooting swimwear when you are london based we just go outside of london to be honest um i think some places i've gone to were basically the bournemouth and the south coast and then also the thing is, that's the most recent addition to things. The reason being was I, that's what I want to shoot. And I know that I can shoot it well, but we all had the problem. We, we have that same problem. It's like, yeah, I want to shoot swimwear, but one, it's cold and rainy and two, we're in London. So at the start of the year, I made a trip to Cape Town for 10 days. And then I think we racked up about 27 shoots in that 10 days. Wow. Most of which was, there were a mix of indoors 
like studio updates uh, for some agencies there. And then the, the vast majority of them were all beach shoots. And so I thought Cape Town is this place where I know every model and their dog goes to in, in the wintertime because it's their summer. And it's literally the biggest testing market that there is. You'll get people from all around the world going there between like December, January, February, March. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go and do the same. I've been wanting to get some sun anyway. It's cold. And yeah, so I went out there and built my swimwear and lifestyle book. And then I came back and now we're in Corona season. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't, that, that didn't quite go to plan. Well, you should have planned better for the pandemic that you didn't know was coming. Yeah, well, I, I saw it coming in China, but I, and then I, I was out there in Cape Town going like, let me get this shit. It's cheaper out here. Everyone's nicer out here. The weather's better out here. There's more work out here. I was like, why do I need to come back? And then I yeah. came back and I was like, okay, then this all kicked off. So I was like, it, it, it is what it is. And everyone's in the same boat right now. Unfortunately so. Um, okay, so moving on, something that you do that I've never had the opportunity to talk to someone um, on the podcast uh, that does the same thing is you do a lot of product work. Um, and I yeah. think there's a lot there's a lot about product work that kind of is underappreciated or not even considered by the majority of photographers when they see a product image. I think they think that you just put something on the table and take a picture of it and that's a product image. Um, the the lighting for product, is that an entirely different sort of language that you have to learn as a photographer? Uh, not necessarily. Um, okay, so the way that I learned it was, again, by trial and error. And the biggest thing that taught me, or the biggest lessons I learned was when I was shooting scissors, of all things. So the reason why this was a big learning curve was, or just as a bit of background, my friend's family, they uh, they run a company up in Sheffield called White Lees and Sons. And they, for the longest time, they make handmade shears and scissors and things like this for industry, for military, for all these kind of uses. Mm -hmm. And they brought me up to shoot a specific collection that they were launching. And I thought, okay, well, this is going to be new. And then I realized to light product, you've just got to know about reflections. So to make metal shiny, it's effectively a mirror. So you need to make sure that you're seeing the light bounce off the source into your camera. It's like playing with mirrors at that point. That's the biggest takeaway I got from that. And then I realized, oh, that's effectively the case with every single surface. Just it's not necessarily as reflective as, a, as metal or a mirror. And then when I did my friend's hair oil bottle recently, I was like, oh, what I'll do is I'll just keep everything constant as in my, my tripod will be in the same place. My settings will be in the same place. My, in the product won't move, but the one thing that will move between each shot is where my light is. So that way I can take 10 shots of the same product with different lighting positions. I can stack them all in Photoshop and choose, all right, on this surface, I want the light where it hit from that side. On the bottle cap, I want the light where it hit from this side. And then you can composite the perfect image if you only have one light source. And that's okay. how I approach. Yeah. I mean, with product photography, again, I learned it through retouching. Um, I have a very good friend who does a lot of commercial post-production and every now and then he just lets me see the inside of him, know how these things are put together. And he's like, like you said, a lot of people think it's okay. So you put a product here, you light it one particular way and it's done. It's like, well, that's one way you can do it. And that's how it's advertised when you see like these mobile light boxes and like from a consumerist point of view, that's mm. how it's put out there. But from a professional point of view, you need to have plates. What you want to do is isolate every single element of that shot from, you know, so you can effectively composite a perfect version of it later on if you need to. So you can just, you know, you take one the background of it on its own, then you put the product in and then you light that product from different ways. I, I look at product photography like a giant science experiment and that's how I approach it. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that you didn't start off with paid work. So you, your trial and error beginnings would have been what you grabbing your aftershave bottle and just setting up at home and trying to see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it, it was actually, um, what did I use? It was like this little clock that we had that I just, I did some photography of that. And I didn't do plates using that. The first time I did plates was actually, was actually on a paid job because I'd 
I'd learned about the concept a while back, but not really put it into practice. And then when I realized plates are, set, are effectively the same thing as using, you know, like HDR of low, high and mid um, exposures, but just mm-hmm. you know, the same philosophy, but just on a different execution. And I was like, oh, this is easy. I mean, I started photography back in 2013 and right about that time was when, especially in America, the HDR thing was just this puke inducing gaggle of colors of an abandoned truck or a landscape that looked so hyper real and cartoonish it was gross so i've always got an aversion to hdr but obviously if it's done by someone that isn't a complete sociopath it can actually look really nice sorry i want to switch gears because there's something i'm very very interested in with you um You've already kind of touched on it by talking about makeup artists and stylists and stuff, but let's talk about your editorials and the planning that goes into your editorials. How do you build the team? How does the idea come about and how do you communicate that idea? Okay, so it depends on the publication. So there are publications which run monthly themes where your, your brief is effectively already set out. So Lucy's Magazine and Elements Magazine and a few others, to name a, just to name a couple, they will have a theme for every month and it might be quite prescriptive or it might be quite loose. So one, it it might be like, you know, um, winged eyeliners, for example, right. Might be the theme. So it then gets to a point where I'll reach out to a makeup artist that I've been testing with already. And I know that she does good, uh, editorial work because every makeup artist will do good clean work because they have to, in order to get commercial page gigs. But then like, like everyone, you have your bread and butter stuff that you get paid for, which isn't necessarily what you're inspired by all the time. And then there's your experiments. So I'll, I'll say, look, why don't we just do a test? We'll do five or six different wing liner looks, which is typically the minimum amount of variety you need to submit to an editorial. And if it comes out to be how we want it to be, then we'll just submit it. And you go to that, once you've agreed that with the makeup artist, then you go to the agency and say, this is the makeup artist I'm using. This is what our loose plan mood board is. This is where we're looking to get it submitted and published to. And then they'll say, okay, we have some girls who are free that day or some guys who are free that day. Um, and, you know, here's a, here's a package and give like a first, second and third selection because if you're testing or using them for editorial, which is obviously no one's getting paid here, then it's a case of if they get a casting or a job come up, then that takes priority. So that's one thing you need to keep in mind when using agency talent is that if you're doing mm-hmm. tests, that if castings and if something else comes up that the agency deems more important, then they go to that. The idea is though where um the, the okay, so one question I do want to ask you because you brought it up. Um when you have a brief or, or an idea given to you by um a magazine or whoever, and you said it's either prescriptive or loose, the, the general theme, what do you prefer? Do you prefer it to be quite prescriptive and give you a tight set of um constraints to work within, or do you like a loose brief? Somewhere in between. So I'll like a brief that might say, you know, colored liners, for example. So it means that, okay, liners have to be in there and they have to be use of color. Okay, fine. But within that, you can now add your own, you can add your own rules or your own themes. So maybe you decide that, I don't know, this particular month, you're particularly into tropical fish, for example. And Mm -hmm. let's say you pick six patterns that are on tropical fish and integrate those into the colors of the liner, for example. Mm-hmm. This is something which took me a hell of a long time to understand. Because when people would say to me, oh, it's an editorial story, it's a story. I would be like, I don't see a story. I just see things. I don't. I can't link it. And until someone told me, Indy, switch out the word story for theme, then it finally clicked. I was like, oh, that's what you mean by story. You mean theme. Right. It, it took me traveling to Canada to go on a workshop for someone to point this out to me. That's wow. how, yeah, that sometimes it doesn't click. Sometimes it does. This one took a little longer. And I was like, oh, that's what you guys mean by story. Because when I see story, I'm expecting like a beginning, middle and end. I don't see any of that here. I just see random things. And then when someone pointed that out to me, I was like, oh, now this makes sense. And you said that it's multiple sets shot on the day based on the theme. How many of those sets would you say are sort of you throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks? And how many of those going in do you know are the ones that are going to work? I think you've got to 
you've you got to plan for about seven or eight. And then for a successful submission to these magazines, typically they want six, which come through. And some agencies will be quite, if you've developed a relationship with a booker, for example, they'll know that you're not trying to waste their time. They know that it's going to be slightly experimental. So you can say, okay, this is the theme, but this is our mood board within the theme. And then you give them like, you know, what you aim to shoot or come away with, or if you've drawn something, just send that over to them and say, these are some designs we're thinking of. Or that in that case, not, not necessarily us as photographers. At this point, we're actually servicing the makeup artist because she's the person or he's the person who actually has to actually do the work. So it's okay. working closely with a creative who actually has to do it because, you know, the photographer sort of comes at the end and captures what has been created. Do you ever find that you have a creative conflict in terms of one of you seeing a brief going in one direction and and like a makeup artist or a stylist seeing it going in another? Um, not necessarily conflict, rather misunderstanding. So there was one time where we did a shoot and the idea was that we would have shapes and makeup. Now, to me, that meant that they would make shapes on the face using makeup. To them, it meant that they came out with cut out shapes and put it on top of the makeup. Now, both are editorial, both can look very funky. It's just that we didn't come in with the same brief in our minds that day because we just hadn't clarified that. Typically, if if there's friction, the shoot won't go ahead because the you know, the friction will have happened prior to you guys even arriving that day. You wouldn't be working together if there was friction to start with. That the only thing that can really creep through is like a misunderstanding like that versus I don't want to be here. What, why are we doing it kind of thing? Right. Um, so we've talked about beauty. We've talked about editorial, so like fashion work and product. Of beauty versus fashion versus product, which one do you prefer shooting? I mean, it, it genuinely just depends on the day. I mean, if, if, I'm, if you have one of those feelings where it's like, I can't be bothered to deal with people today, I will take product over anything because it doesn't blink, it doesn't move, it, everything just stays the same and you have complete control over it. Um, beauty I like doing when there is a point to it I don't like it when people say oh I just need some clean beauty edits I'm like well great but that might necessarily be what I need either I prefer doing creative beauty because it's just it's more visually stimulating and you can get quite creative and funky with uh, your retouching afterwards as well because that gives you much more of a challenge in retouching to be like okay how do I fix this while also maintaining the crazy line that this person's put on there? And then I think after a while of both studio product and beauty, I like going outside and shooting in natural light environments. Like Cape Town was a giant learning curve because I deliberately didn't shoot with any flash while I was out there. I didn't even take a reflector with me out on the beaches. I was like, how can we just use the natural light and the surfaces around us to manipulate what we need. And yeah, I go through phases. That's probably the great thing about having a multitude of, of, of uh, genres that you want to work in is that when one becomes undesirable for a short period of time, you can offset it with another one. I've been doing that for the last five years with um, sort of working between working with models and working on weddings. It's great to offset one with the other and you can learn skills oh, in yeah. one that you can translate as well. Um, I want to ask you a particularly broad question. I have to say, um, so just so you know, this is number 50 on the podcast list. So I, I don't know if you care much nice. for round numbers, but I think that's quite a cool thing. Um, and I think this might be one of our most informative, um, despite the sort of dearth of really amazing uh, talent that we've had on. I think this has been one of the most informative. Um, but I want to ask you a very broad question and put you in the corner a little bit. Do you think, generally speaking, Instagram has been positive for photography as a whole? As a whole, yes, because it's an easily accessible platform where you can get discovered if you're just coming into it. It means that you can, you're not necessarily subject to like the clicks that exist in like, you know, like say maybe like a high fashion or any of these industries, which are sort of like anecdotally, like quite closed and within themselves, it gives, it, it becomes a free market. Now, the problem that you get with anything is that you'll have oversaturation. You will get to a point where there's a race to the bottom for rates. That's something which has affected a lot of people. You know, some people mm -hmm. who take it as a, as a hobby who are very good at what they do, 
will not necessarily have the best business mindset and undercharge, you know, for something which someone who's far more experienced who could do the same thing might charge 10 times more. Mm -hmm. I suppose the mindset I want to kind of run away from is that I try not to think of, oh, this is really good for us. This is really bad for us. The fact that it's here means that it's something that you just have to deal with and just find, just find a way to use it as a tool to maximize your, like the core point or message of what it is that you're trying to put forward. Because if the moments that you stop to think, oh, you know, this is really like, this isn't great. Well, yeah, but it's not going to stop just because you don't think it's great. It's like, get on board or get out of the way that those are your two options. Really. You can either play the game or you cannot. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my thoughts about it. I think, I think, it, I think overall it's good. I mean, otherwise you'd have all these people who would try photography and then not get anywhere because they have no way to showcase their work. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Bad, it's bad for the established people who now have more competition, but if they're good in what, that, what they do and can adapt, well, then mm-hmm. there shouldn't be a problem. It's really only yeah. bad news for people who don't adapt with the times. For anyone else, everyone's got the same opportunity. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, to go from something quite broad to something that I'm not the biggest gearhead in the world. I don't particularly care about cameras so much. They're just to me, it's just like a hammer to a builder. It's just a thing that you hold in your hand and it does the job you need it to do. Um, but what is your camera setup? What gear are you using at the moment? All right, cool. So I'm using a Nikon D800 and a Nikon D4. These are two flagship ones which came out like maybe like six years ago now. Again, I started out in wedding photography and these tools have not really gone out of use. I mean, the D4 is not necessarily the biggest resolution thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like what, 16 megapixels or something? But for what I need, it's absolutely fine because a lot of the time I'm shooting for social. And if I'm shooting for social, I don't need 50 megapixels. It's like, why would I waste so much much space? Mm Um, and when it comes to the D800, I'll use it for product and I'll use it for beauty because having that extra resolving power means that I have a bit more leeway to crop in, but yeah, until they start failing, I had, I don't have a particular need to try and, you know, update them. It's, it's kind of like dead money at that point when you can just rent a body for a job for like a hundred quid. Yeah. And in terms of glass, what's your sort of go-to lenses? Uh, it does a glass for beauty. I use a Sigma Macro 105. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the lifestyle stuff, actually, in Cape Town, what I was using was a really old Nikon, Nikon, everyone to pronounce it, uh, 35 to 70. So these predate the 28, 24 to 70s. Yep. And it's a push-pull to zoom 2.8. And that was really informative because... As I was, uh, I was playing with focal lengths out there. I was like, all right, I'll shoot this person at 70 mil and it gives me a relatively compressed background and it looks very, you know, modern-ish. You know, it's like, it kind of, it looks architectural almost. Whereas if I go towards them and frame them in the same way, but come wider, all of a sudden, all the person's angles and clothing and things like this look far more dynamic. And this gives me a much more useful feel. And I was like, and like an urban energetic feel. I was like, oh. And so these are the things I'm still learning. So the 35 to 70 has been really useful for me recently. And then the the Sigma 105 for beauty and product has been really useful as well. So those are my go-to lenses. If people look at someone like your portfolio and see what you're doing with not the most recent released camera and lens and whatnot, it might, I always think it just might help people get over this idea that they are one piece of equipment away from being good at something. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I used to go to the photo show and if it was on this year, I would have gone as well. And I remember going at the very start of my career and I was there looking at the gear like everyone else does and all this kind of stuff. And I remember getting, when I got my second body, I was expecting me, my, you know, something brand new to come out of my photos. And I was like, oh, it's exactly the same, mm-hmm. you know? And then you realize it's not the gear that you use. It's what you can do. Now, then you start getting into the whole like, oh, you could take a really rubbish piece of gear. It's like, no, 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 no. You still need gear, which will enable your quality to show through. Mm-hmm. But using the newest and best stuff doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've now grown a brand new talent. Yeah. You now just have a, 
you know, a new resolution attached to what you're already doing. It's when your ability starts hitting the ceiling of your gear. It's when when you are unable to do something because your gear is literally restricting you from doing something that's stopping you from improving. That's when the piece of gear changes things. But when you are um when you are literally like yeah, you know, I'm just not getting much good stuff out of the camera at the moment, but it's probably the camera's fault. I don't know. I'll just get a new camera. That'll sort things out. That's when you realize that maybe it's not the gear, maybe it's you. Precisely. I mean, that's literally what happened to me. So when I started doing weddings, I actually had my, we had a D7000. That was the first camera we had. And that failed when I was on a job. And that did not go, thankfully, we managed to use like a, a guest's camera or something like this and finish the job. We were really lucky. Um, but I knew that the reason it failed was that the shutter had failed because we'd taken so many shots. And I was like, okay, this is the top of the consumer range. What's the top of the professional range? And at that time, it was the D4. And I looked at it, I thought, right, this thing is like five grand for the body alone. And I need it because everything it boasts in terms of shooting in low, in low light capability, great autofocus and you know just having a high shutter count those are the things which i needed and at this point you get two schools of thought one of which is oh work your way up to it so get a slightly less better one and then eventually get that one to which point i go but in total over time you've now spent more so why would you do that and my perspective was well I know what I need. This is the tool that does the job. And then I looked at, can we afford it? And how long is it going to last? And do I have the bookings to back it up? Thankfully, I did. So I was like, right, we'll just go from the bottom end to the top end. And this thing will basically cater for anything I would need to do. I, you're effectively future-proofing yourself Yes. by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. If if, yeah, if you're in a position to do it, then then do it. Because what's the point of buying it two years from now if you're going to end up buying it anyway? Just do it. So if you don't mind me asking a very, very quick question here, how old are you? I'm 30 years old. Jesus Christ. Okay. So I'm, I'm a very, very old 31. I'm, I'm very long in the two foot 31. I've lived about 60 years in the 31 that I've been around. Um, but obviously considering the portfolio that you have and your age, um, it firstly, it's incredibly impressive. Thank you. But what I want to ask you is, do you think that that's more down to your assertiveness and your grabbing opportunities by the net? Or is it down to your natural talent with a camera? I think it's it's both because I wasn't necessarily always this assertive and being, I wasn't always this confident as a person because, you know, just for whatever reason, I was just a late bloomer and everything. Like I was, so when I was working in my previous job, I was still living at home. And that, that took me to the age of 26. And then when I went full time, I also moved out. I moved to London. I stayed with, I, I still currently do uh, live with two friends who I've known since my school days. And then it was that whole learning of being responsible for yourself, your own finances, all the things which other people might learn at university, right? When they first live out because, you know, just the situation was that we all lived at home because it was no point of moving out and gathering debt was the was the mentality which i agree with i learned all these things later on and at that point in time you start thinking okay well things don't work if i don't work especially when you're freelance so while i'm also building up all this photography in this portfolio i'm also i also still have a retouching strain which was actually my bread and butter for the best part of two years where i was doing retouching three or four days a week for a beauty brand and that was actually what was what was my salary and then the photography was kind of like my playtime within it. But it was a great mix because what I learned in retouching, I could then apply to my own work when I did my shooting. It was like a nice symbiotic relationship in that respect. And I think it just gets to a point as you get older where you're like, you know what? I just need to go and do what I'm going to do. So I booked Cape Town at the very, very, very last minute. And you know it cost me a fair bit. But... I've come back with so much more knowledge than than how long it would have taken me to learn that had I not gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, you you pay for experiences and all your learnings, and I definitely do not regret it. So, because the thing is, from my perspective, I've only really been full time for four years, and that's not very long. And I think I have a book now which is pretty well rounded, 
now it's a case of how do we navigate this particular time and then how do we come out of it and where does it all go? So you brought up earlier the need for there to be a purpose to an image, that there has to be a reason for why it was taken. This is the last question I want to ask you. And again, it's frightfully um, broad, but in terms of purpose, what is the purpose of your work overall? What are you trying to communicate with your images? A lot of it is testing. So a lot of what I, I put up is how can I, how can I pretty much just try, some of it is how can I try like a new lighting setup? Because a few people have told me that they can look at my work and think that it's different people that have taken all the shots because you know some of it's front flash, some of it's ambient, some of it's natural light, some of it's beauty. And I, my language isn't necessarily one lighting setup. I tend to go with the viewpoint of what's appropriate for the brief. And then we just shoot that. I've, I come at it from almost a far more engineering point of view. And then the art sort of sits on top. In terms of what I would like it to show is that, um, I suppose for beauty, it, it depends for each thing, what it is with product stuff. I want the message to, or like, I want the, the product to look the best it can possibly look without looking CGI or fake with mm -hmm. beauty. I, I, again, I want it to look the best it can possibly look, but without it coming across as over retouched or over airbrushed to the point where it's no longer relatable and it looks like a cartoon. I'm not about that. As every photographer has done, I have done work like that. And then you look at it later, you learn from it and you go, okay, we'll tone it down. We won't do that again. When it comes to like swimwear and laundry and stuff like that, but that you have to be careful with because if it's not sh if it's not shot right, it can look quite trashy or seedy. And then it's in those scenarios you need to remember that the thing you're selling is the product. So you need to also you have to almost come at it from the mindset of how do I like this product best? And then you know, the model's doing her bit; she'll look great anyway, or he'll look great anyway. So yeah, it's just how do I like these curves? How do I like this surface? How do I like this detail? I think, yeah, that's how I, I suppose that not sure if that answers the question, but that's how I approach each, each scenario or each genre to get the best out of it. Well, one of the things that's been fascinating with the podcast is just learning that some people approach things from um, almost an emotional point of view. They approach photography from an emotional point of view. They want their images to have a certain emotion. Other people approach it, like you said, almost like an engineering sort of view. And um, to be honest with you, I don't, Obviously, I've got a very small sample size, um, but it appears to me that the people that are doing it from an emotional point of view tend to be the ones that are um, more inconsistent in terms of the quality of their output. Like they could put out something that is wildly brilliant and also something that just misses the mark so far. You're not even sure it was taken by someone that knows the person that it's supposedly taken by. Um, whereas... Uh, I, I'm surprised to hear you say about people remarking that your work looks like it was taken by different people because I think you do have a really good overriding um, look to your images. I think it, it's very obvious to me, at least, maybe I'm weird like this, but it's very obvious to me that it's all taken by the same person because the personality comes through in the way that you kind of empower what you're photographing. Um, this has been an absolutely amazing podcast. I've really enjoyed this chat. I wish I could keep you on the line for about another two hours and just absolutely pull your brain to pieces. But what I want to make sure is that we know where we can find your work and how people can uh, interact with you. So what are your social media links and your website? Okay. So my website is indiesagoo.com. That's I-N-D-Y-S-A-G-O-O. -O. And then my social, my Instagram link is the same. It's at Indiesagoo. Currently working on a YouTube channel because I want to put out some educational retouching videos, um, like just the basics, because one thing that I have seen is that there are a lot of tutorials out there and there's a lot of people who are like, you know, I, this is the way to do it. And when you mm. go to a commercial retouching house, it's completely not the way to do it. Mm. Like this whole frequency separation argument, which is just wastes so many people's time. It's use it when you need to use it. It's as simple as that. It's not yeah. the be all and end all. It's just another tool. And yeah. then, so yeah, those, those are the two places where you can find my work at the moment. Um, as and when I can, I get new platforms up and running. Um, I'll give you all a shout or I'll link them on the other platforms themselves. Amazing. This has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. No worries. No worries. Anytime. Now, shiny.
just the other day I saw you looking my way uh, Start to contemplate moments that went to waste uh, Why you do that? You drop me like who that? And put me through that? My baby is useless I'm living my life Don't need you with mine Me feeling just fine One of a kind Who better than I? What I got to, do. got to do I'ma make it loud How I made you scream Like a cockatoo Squirrel. Turn the party web About to show the rest What the boy can do What you expect How I forget These thoughts of you Don't need no reps I'm in the jet Gonna fly the coop Fly the coop Shawty don't play that game Shawty don't play that game I won't keep you safe Time that I'll be okay Don't play that